Now, as I said, we started this mini-series on the book of 1 John, and last week we focused primarily on the first four verses. There, we would have looked at how John reminded us that our great God and Savior has brought eternal life to men through the man Jesus Christ. Now, as we went through this passage, we would have seen that John's primary focus was to invite and to further the fellowship that saints have with God. That was his primary intent. He says there, he's writing this that you may have fellowship with us. Now, as we look more closely at the verses that are particularly in view today, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2, it may be helpful to spend some time looking at the various circumstances which prompted John to write this letter in the first place. Most commentators suggest that at least two major issues sparked the writing of this letter. And I covered one in the first sermon, so I'm not going to spend much time on that. But the first issue was the issue about the nature of the person of Christ, whether he came as a physical man or not. John takes a lot of time to explain in verse 1 that Jesus actually came as a man because a lot of people were creeping into the church saying that he only appeared as a spirit. Uh, age-old heresy called docetism but we dealt with that the second issue is more primarily in view and it relates to our obligations to obey god's law the issues surrounding this false teaching demand our particular attention because they're relevant to this part of the passage now throughout this letter john devotes particular emphasis to this by drawing our attention to to it by various words such as he who says or if anyone says or if we say we see these type of phrases littered throughout John's letter he who says if anyone says he's drawing our attention to the fact that there are people who are coming to you and they will say this they will say that about our obligations towards God's law the apostle uses this mode of expression to identify those people or what they're saying who are leading believers astray John Piper gives a helpful summary about these false prophets. He says that they proclaimed to fellowship with God, to know God, abide in Christ, that they were in the light, to love God, while disobeying his commandments, sinning, walking in darkness, and not loving their brothers. And this was the deception that John wanted to avoid. He's saying, it is a lie It is false if you believe that you can live in right relationship with God and not have right living. He's saying that those two things are are not synonymous, that you have to have one and the other. You can't have one and not the other. It is likely because of this false teaching that there were also people who seceded or withdrew from the fellowship that this local body had. There were people who originally fellowshiped with them but as John says, they were among us, but they proved that they were not on a, among us. They were not of us because they left us. That is what John is saying. John is saying those people who say that I can just walk in whatever life I want to, those people who say that I can live however I want, they withdrew from John's fellowship, the fellowship of believers that John is addressing. And it is within this context of confusion and tumult that John places these words before us. He says, this is the message we heard from him. God is light. In John's mind, the remedy for this situation 
the way to correct the local church and indeed the church universal on matters of faith and practice culminate in who God is. It is actually instructive how John begins this letter. He addresses the confusion and uncertainty that may have existed at the time. And he implicitly makes us aware that what separates orthodoxy from heterodoxy is matters relating to God. If you don't get who God is right, you are not in right relationship with God. He makes that abundantly clear here by saying God is light. That's how he begins his message. It is upon these weighty claims that he will unfold about God that we are to order our lives and also that he, he suggests to us that if it is we don't get this right, we don't only have a right living issue, we have an idolatry issue. It's not just that a person goes on sinning, it's that the God that they say that they serve is not the God that they profess. That is ultimately what John is saying to us here. The apostle is urging us to uphold the first and primary commandment, to behold and worship and adore God alone. And this is ultimately where the battle against sin and false teaching is fought. And that is why John sums up the entirety of his epistle with the exhortation, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Given his claim about God is foundational to the rest of the verses that we're going to explore, it's best that we get some idea of what exactly John means when he says, God is light. What is he trying to convey to us by that statement well we can easily point to some things he doesn't mean God isn't electromagnetic radiation he isn't a big ball of shining luminescence in heaven that isn't God though we see in scripture that God is described as being a bright being we shouldn't take it to mean that God is what we're seeing when we turn on a light God isn't material in other words but though we may take this as an obvious example of wooden literalism we should consider the fact that later on John says stuff like God is love and how people often construe that to mean that God is nothing but love so you can fall off on either side of the the fence you can say well God has to be like this and therefore he's nothing but that Or you can say, well, God is not like that, and therefore I can't think of him like that. So there are two sides of the fence you can fall off on. But John isn't trying to tell us literally that God is light. We we should be cautious of inadvertently misrepresenting who God is by thinking of him of anything other than how he has revealed himself, obviously. Or stated another way, We shouldn't conceive of God in a manner that he hasn't revealed himself. To do otherwise is cosmic treason. It is no different than what the Israelites did when they made the golden calf. They gave Aaron gold and said that is who God is. It's the same thing if we look at John's statement and say God is light and think he's luminescence. That's not the case. John isn't telling us that God is literally light. And there are subtle ways in which we subvert who the person of God is oftentimes the Jehovah Witnesses do it all the time they look at us and tell us how can you think about God in that way punishing sinners in hell forever he can't be loving if he does that 
Or how could you ever think about God in this way if He does that? And with many other words, they make us or promote the construing of God in a way that is in man's own image. It is because we have a certain idea of love that God can't do certain things. That isn't the case. God isn't even the amalgamation of our experiences with Him. That isn't the case either. He isn't who we have seen in a dream, for instance, and said, well, God is like that because I saw Him like that in a dream. That isn't the case. As John MacArthur infamously and provocatively said, we can't throw our theology into the fires of our experiences and say we are worshipping God. We can't do that. God is who He is, and we must approach Him as He has revealed Himself. But the sense that we should get in what the Apostle has said when he says God is light is that he's using a literary tool that gives prominence and significance to God's moral purity. To be certain, when the Apostle claims that God is light, he may mean more than moral purity, but he doesn't mean less than that, obviously. But John's terminology here is consistent with God's holiness. And it is more clearly illustrated to us when John further adds, In him is no darkness at all. God is completely separate from and totally unmixed with all that is moral evil or sin. And the temptation here is to think when God says there is no darkness in him at all, is to think that's synonymous with what holiness is. Perhaps we may think of God as simply being the absence of evil. Or the absence of moral corruption. That's not the case. John Piper says aptly, He is not holy because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals who God is. God's ethical majesty is therefore not merely a disassociation with what is evil. But he is light because the sum of moral excellency abides in him. R.C. Sproul provides us with some insight about how impeccable God's nature is in light of ours by using the account of Isaiah. Allow me this somewhat lengthy quote. He says, If ever there was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah ben Amos. He was a whole man, a together type of fellow. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. Then, He caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that sudden moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his character. The instant he compared himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity itself collapsed. Isaiah felt intensely the distance between himself and God because his holiness, God's moral purity, confronted his own moral bankruptcy in comparison. Surely, Isaiah was, as we see later on, saved, a Christian, a righteous man, as the scripture testifies of him. But compared to who God is, he was but dust, but nothing. And it is this lofty thought of God's virtuousness that lays the foundation for the remainder of the chapter. 
The big idea John is communicating within this chapter is that our attitude towards sin determines whether we fellowship with God or not, ultimately. We cannot say that God works in partnership with us and, does, and we do the very things that he opposes. It would mean, ultimately, as I said before, that we have an idolatry issue. If we say that we fellowship with God, that God is in need, and we are practicing sin, and we are callous towards our sin, the God who we are speaking about is an idol. That God is not the true and living God. That God has no partaker with you. And this is precisely his train of logic when he transitions between verses 5 to verses 6 and 7. It's almost as though we can insert a therefore between verses 5 and 6. God is light. Therefore, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. On the surface, John's argument is simple. It could run something like this. God is holy or light, as we see in verse 6. And therefore, a Christian or believer must be holy or light too. But thinking of the passage in this way reduces the entirety of John's book to a bunch of moral imperatives that we have to fulfill. The apostle certainly isn't saying anything less than that. Certainly. But he is saying more. We shouldn't associate, we shouldn't ignore, rather, the clear association between fellowship in the light, or rather, pardon me, we shouldn't ignore the clear association between our fellowship with God and walking in the light. John is clearly emphasizing a harmony if we do not act in a particular way. John is saying, well, this thing called fellowship with God is absent from you if you do not walk in the light. Of course, John is making the claim then that fellowship with God actually looks like something. Any close observer in our daily lives can tell where our affiliation or commonality lies. It is very difficult to not show during our day-to-day, whether we go through our conversation with our boss at work, whether we go through our conversation with our spouse, whether we are speaking to a brother or sister, it's very difficult not to show whether we have greater affiliation with our first foreparent Adam or whether we have greater resemblance to Christ. It's very difficult to ignore at times whether we have greater affiliation with Satan or whether we have greater affiliation with God. God is light and all those who are truly in him, in the light, participate, with the, participate in the works that he commends. Spurgeon notes that there's a heart disposition that runs or underlies this, these actions. He says, at the very bottom of our fellowship, there must be a likeness. We must have like wishes, like desires. We must have espoused ends. And our spirits must be welded together in the intention to effect like purposes. And this is borne out or displayed in our actions. Just as closeness with a husband and a wife or two friends is seen in their mutual affection towards one another, their prizing of each other's interests, or even esteeming their dignity and worth. So John points us to objective evidences that corroborate our claims that we fellowship with God. I can actually look at someone and say, that person and that person get along. That person and that person, they are two people working in partnership towards an end. We have no reason, therefore, or or rather, this is what John's argument is, we have no reason to testify that we commune with God or that we are in fellowship with God 
if we bear no similarity to him. As we look more closely at verses 6 to 10, John gives several conditional clauses throughout the letter. He says, firstly, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, then he says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, and then he says, if we say we have no sin, and he says that twice, if we say we have no sin, and if we say we have not sinned. John says these three times, and they're generally two ways of looking at this passage. The first is that John is encouraging us to display a particular pattern of living or a means by which we are entering into fellowship. So the idea here is that walking in darkness or a habitual pattern of sin precludes or excludes someone from fellowship because they have not done the works that achieves fellowship with God. That would be one way of thinking about this passage. They have not performed the acts that God necessarily requires of them in order to say that person can fellowship with me. I want that person to fellowship with me. That's one way of looking at the passage. But it is wrong to think of these verses and indeed the rest of of the letter that John writes as the things that we do to achieve fellowship with God. John is rather describing walking in light as diagnostic of communion or participation with God. John is saying these characteristics in our life show or or are able to manifest whether we fellowship with God or not. It's not the means that we do to enter into fellowship with God. That's not the case. It's the thing that we look at to see whether we are in fellowship with God. And those are two different things. One is the cause of our entering with God and the second is rather the effect, the one that we look at to see whether it is we have entered or not. And remember, these statements are made amidst the context of those practicing sin while claiming to be in fellowship with God. The apostle isn't using his the apostle is using his authority to help the church to separate sheep from goats. But for us at CRBC, we don't have an equally distressful situation where we have to look around and say, well, What does this person believe? Is he in fellowship with God? What does this person believe? John isn't writing to us at CRBC and saying, well, there are these people who are preaching these false teachings in CRBC, Barbados, and we have to basically look around and say, okay, well, this person's in, this person's out. That's not the context that we have here. But I think that rather we should look at John's letter, unlike the people that his primary intent, his primary audience is for, and apply them to ourselves to look and see whether we are in the faith, to look and see whether our brothers and sisters here are walking in fellowship with God. So there are three things that John points out as evidence that we have fellowship with God. In verse 7, we see that if we fellowship in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This statement is kind of surprising given what comes before, because what comes before is, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. So basically, John is kind of making an unsurprising claim, because you would expect that he's going to speak about fellowshipping with God. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. That statement is false. But then he says, if we do fellowship with him, We have fellowship with one another. 
the apostle isn't denying, obviously, that those who walk in the light have fellowship with God. But instead, he's emphasizing the reality that there's no real fellowship with God that exists or that is expressed without fellowship with other believers. You can't have God and not his people. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't like those people down there that gather at that church. That is outside of the ambit of Christianity. You can't say, well, I have the father, but I don't have his children. Speaking about this idea, R.C. Sproul comments and says, Thieves do not speak, do not seek the consoling fellowship of police officers. Thieves do not seek the consoling presence of police officers. Christians do not seek the fellowship of unrepentant sinners who are living and practicing sin. There is a peculiar way in which we fellowship with Christians. There's a peculiar way in which we have a different relationship with people in this world. We do discriminate. It's a fact. We do discriminate. And that and John is saying that that is right. We all ought to have a sense of unease, a sense of discomfort, a sense of revulsion of participating with those who are doing the unfruitful works of darkness. We should all have a sense of unease. If we don't, that's just a telltale sign of where we are spiritually. John is saying that diagnoses you as someone who may indeed not be a partaker in this very fellowship that we have. Whether this is gossip in the workplace, criminal acts, perpetuating dishonesty, crude jesting, whatever it is, participating or sharing in common or fellowshipping with those who lead sinful lifestyles, does not characterize Christians. It doesn't. But from the immediate context, it is also eminently clear that this extends to those who live morally upright lives, yet repudiate the gospel. It isn't as simple as saying, well, this person lives a good life. He's an upstanding citizen. I can fellowship with him. He is the person that I go to with my deepest problems. He's the person that I hang out with most often. Yet, he says that Jesus is a frog. That is not the person whom we are supposed to be having the closest fellowship with. And it is clear, isn't it? If we enjoy fellowship with God, how can we then enjoy fellowship with people who reject him? How is it that we can identify ourselves with him if it is that we ourselves are enjoying the company, imbibing the the praise and imbibing the fellowship of people who are altogether dissimilar from him. Ultimately, John wants us to understand and be convinced of the fact that to be likened to, to be considered the same as those who are opposed to God testifies of our very relation to him. We enjoy the fellowship of one another here at CRBC because the savor of Christ rests upon each and every one of us. There's something about a Christian that I really love because he bears resemblance to Jesus. There's something about a Christian that I really enjoy because I get a taste of what heaven is like. There's something about those who I hang out with, that I love, that I chill out with, that speak the same lingo as I speak, that are able to testify of God's grace as I do because they bear similarity to God. On the other hand, to love, to enjoy, to participate with those persons who are evil merely manifests how unlike God we are. 
how distant we are from his desires and his purpose. It is worth mentioning that the role of the church is hereby affirmed or even elevated. Anyone can testify that they commune with believers. Anyone can sit down in their home and say, I fellowship with Christians. Anyone can say that. That's rather simple. The question really is, do believers say that they fellowship with you? That's, that's the question. Do people affirm your statement that you are in fellowship with other believers? Within the local church, we are all called individually and collectively to preserve the witness of who God is on this earth. We ought to strive to put out those professing Christians who say that they have fellowship with God, but bear no marks of persons who are redeemed and changed by God. And we are to reassure the weak, and we are to encourage the strong to press on to that heavenly city. Prayerfully, humbly, and graciously, we are called to diagnose or detect those who Christ has redeemed and fellowship with them. But we aren't merely called to be on a fact-finding mission, as I said before. Let's not neglect those efforts towards our sisters and brothers that provoke them to greater conformity to God's law. Whether it is through the soothing of their soul with how Christ has enriched us and how Christ has nourished us and how Christ has redeemed us by the all-satisfying nature of who he is for us or correcting doctrinal errors or matters of practice. Would it not enrich your soul if you realize because of these words I said to my brother or sister, he's more resolute or he's more assured of the great love that God has for him. He can be more assured that I am indeed in fellowship with God. Would that not grant us a great happiness if we were to work to that end? We can't neglect this basic duty. This is a basic duty of persons who are living in covenant community together. To afford the members of CRBC fellowship means to recognize them as fellow partakers of the covenant of grace, but also to stir them on to being further and further aware of the fact that they are covenant partakers. But brethren, all too often, R.C. Sproul's comment about not seeking the fellowship of purity is true of us. All too often, in our sinfulness, we do not crave the company of purity. Our fellow Christians. We are oftentimes ashamed, despondent, wearied by our sin and lack the unction to want to be around other believers. That's just a fact. Like Adam, we would rather hide and languish in our misery. But look at the glorious hope that we see here laid out in verse 7. In verse 7, John says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John is driving home the point that in the life of Christians, we will see a decreasing pattern of sin. He's elevating the efficacy of Christ's atoning work. And this is our second point, the second evidence that we are indeed fellowshipping with God. We are decreasingly looking less like the world. We are decreasingly looking less like our forefather Adam and looking more like Jesus Christ. In this life, John is claiming that we will struggle with sin. The very fact that he says we will be cleansed necessitates that there's something to be cleansed from, obviously. But he's saying that in this struggle, 
that eventually all sin will be vanquished. John is speaking of all sins without exception. Big sins, little sins, small sins, whatever sins. Jesus' atoning death guarantees that God will separate our sins as far from the east as from the west. And both personally and legally. This will ultimately culminate in glorification. But as we sojourn here for a time, we will see more and more of the righteousness of Christ in our lives. As I said before, he's upholding the efficacy of Christ's atonement. He's saying that Christ came here to accomplish something. He came here to conquer sin and death. He came here to serve as a penalty-bearing substitute for our sins. Our sins have been placed upon Christ legally, and legally, when we are looked upon by God, we're justified in His sight. But the reality that John is pointing to is even more than that. He's saying that there is no demonstration of communion with God in those who do not in some way overcome sin. Christians will and they must see decreasing patterns of sins in their life. And what John is calling us to is not mere superficial acts of piety. He isn't calling us to be a good citizen, to give to charity, to get to work on time. That, that isn't merely what he's calling us to here. Christianity involves an entire reordering of our lives. If it is that in your Christendom, you think that Christianity is easy, you probably have a very low view of God's law. If it is that in your Christendom, before you did not look totally dissimilar to now, 10 years later, you probably missed something along the road. And it's probably this, that you had to strive to decrease the pattern of sin in your life. God is light. He will expose in his children those areas that we really have struggles with, that we really need to remove from our lives. Whether it is through other believers pointing it out to us or through his word, we have to, as John says, remove from us sins in increasing measure. This takes, obviously, a momentous effort that only the abiding power of the Spirit can accomplish in believers. John claims, John claims in the Gospel of John that this looks nothing less than bearing a heavy cross each day and following him. Nothing less than hating mother, father, spouse, career, academic achievement in comparison to him. All these things look like if they're hated. I am striving so much to love Jesus that in comparison, I would actually hate these things. I would see them as something that I have to get rid of for the sake of loving Christ. That is how John is calling us to strive to be conformed to God's law. And this is a lofty call. It is impossible, as I said, without the Spirit's work to change our lives. And ultimately, the Christian walks in the light of God because the Spirit allows the Christian to have a detestation of sin. It is because we have been changed and renewed by the Spirit's work that we are able to do so. Though, like David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, we may walk several days in sin. Several days. That's not precluded here. That we could go for a while in sin. Yet, as John says later in, in this book, he cannot go on sinning. You can't. Any time that we look to our sin with callous indifference, 
we should be very afraid, very soberly, we should judge ourselves and look upon God's word and ask for cleansing. And that is what he provides. And this is glorious news to us. This is glorious news. Christ has accomplished something. He has actually effected something in our lives. Christ came to conquer sins. And if that is not expressed in your life, if that is not expressed in my life, we have no claim and to say that Christ has conquered sins on our behalf. We have to, as we go on throughout our lives, show an increasing pattern of conformity to God's law. God has quickened us to this end, as Pastor John has enumerated or said many times. God has called us so that we could be holy. He has loved us so that we could be holy. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons so that we could be holy. So that we could be holy. And this is glorious news, but some may say, or some may ask rather, how can this be good news if it requires those who trust in God to perform such great feats? How is this good news to me? How can I be assured of God's love? How can I be assured that I'm fellowshipping with God if it is he requires so much of me? How can that be good news to me? All that's required is faith, right? All that's required is faith. But facing similar questions, John Piper answers thusly. He says, I answer that a powerless gospel is not good news. A gospel that only wins lip service is not different from any of the other philosophies of the world. Such a gospel produces a Christianity that is a game of words. It encourages lukewarm church goers that are safe from God's wrath because of some inherited mental assent to the love of God. Such a gospel accounts for how 40 million people in America can claim to be born again. At the same time, our moral condition is at an all-time low in and outside of the church. A powerless gospel is no good news at all. Amen, hallelujah, and praise God. Jesus' death must actually purify us Actually, in, in our lives, we must actually be seeing decreasing patterns of sin. When I look back 10 years, I must be able to say, okay, God helped me with this, and I'm no longer the same man. He will in fact demonstrate, Jesus will in fact demonstrate that we have fellowship with him through greater conformity to and love for his law. And so as saints, we should glory in this truth because as we, with earnest effort, see the urgency of John's words to increasingly try to be holy people as God is holy. We can see that it is Christ that has accomplished this work on our behalf. He has done this work and he will complete this work on our behalf. But we have to be careful. John's intention is not to wound the conscience of the weak or to further unsettle our faith with worry. In the pursuit of holiness... Christians are tempted to dwell too much on their sins and forget the kindness of their Heavenly Father. As we, like Isaiah, see more and more of the perfection of beauty that is God Himself, we may be burdened with unease and lament because of our lack of progress. And at times, perhaps, it's good to go through a season of weeping because of our sins. But John is also encouraging us, even as we go through our earthly pilgrimage that the best of our days, even the best day that you have, 
is still marked by some area of sin. Jesus doesn't eradicate the presence of all personal sin within our lives immediately. That only happens at glorification. When we read that it is His blood that cleanses us from all sin, we shouldn't have an over-realized eschatology. We shouldn't say, well, that is now. Now I'm walking in perfection. That isn't the case at all. To claim that we are perfect or sinless in this life is to deceive ourselves. As John claims in verse 8. But worse than that, John says it's an act of blasphemy. John says you actually make God out to be a liar. You make his testimony that he is light, that he is moral purity, that he is holiness, that he is the sum of all moral excellency out to be a lie. If you say that I look God straight in his face as a peer, that is a lie. You, you do not. You are way beneath. So it is a failure to recognize God as truthfully assessing who we are as sinners if it is we say that we're perfect in this life. Brethren, this, isn't, this is a particularly heinous sin as it attempts to elevate our judgment of who we are above God's and to elevate ourselves above who God is in his moral purity. But such pompous views are not uncommon to us as well, are they? There are subtle heart motivations to believe we have no sin when we, be- when we think that we are comfortable because we've made great progress in the Christian life. Sometimes because we've gotten over one thing, or sometimes we have, because we have great joy because God has granted in His grace that we don't struggle with a particular thing for a week. We sit back on our laurels and say, Oh God, I have arrived. Take me on the escalator to heaven. That is how we, we sometimes, in our attitude, we, we have that heart motivation. Like if there's nothing else to be done. Well, behind us is a mountain of sin, whether it be impatience or unforgiveness or whatever it is. Though we may have conquered this thing, there's far, far, far more progress to be made. But even this type of self-obsession, even the type of self-obsession that says, I'm fine in the sight of God, reveals a pride that secretly abhors God who is light. It, It reveals that. Brethren, the Apostle is calling us to agree with God's judgment about ourselves and thereby prove that we are in the light. It's ironic. We prove that we are in the light by agreeing that we are sinners. <laughs> that's, that's a great irony, but it's true. He says if we confess who we are, if we agree with God's judgment, we are in the light. A Christian's response to their sinful condition, he argues, is to confess or admit sin. In other words, we sorrow and we voice our agreement with God's assessment of us. This is an ongoing work. This isn't something we do when we come up to the altar for the first time. John is saying this as an ongoing thing. He says here, but if we walk in the light, it's a consistent pattern. If we say we have no sin, if we confess our sins, it isn't said in the past tense. It is a continuous work that we are con- that we are a doing in conformity to God's law. And we have consolation that we will indeed be heard. God sees it as just to forgive us our sins. God actually, when you bow the knee in sincere contrition and sincere penitence, He actually sees it 
as the right thing to do to forgive us our sins. God doesn't look at us and say, man, what he coming around me for again? That same old thing. That's, that's not the God we serve. God is kind to us and deals with us tenderly as children. He actually deems it as the right or correct thing to do, as I said. And in our weakest moments of pleading, our Heavenly Father is pleased to grant us the grace of pardon. And not only that, but He's pleased to grant us cleansing, as we said before. This is a great motivation for confession. God is saying, those sins that grieve you so, that you bring before me in confession and repentance, that he's pleased to remove even the cause of our plight before him. How great and wonderful news this is to us, that after I have sinned and I feel the guilt and I have to go to sleep being burdened by what I have done, that God is pleased to look upon me and say, I am working to increase your conformity to Jesus Christ himself. I am working in order that this sin that you are burdened with, this sin that besets you, I am moving away from you. He rejoices to remove our sins from us. And these are fitting words to spur us on to hope and to live before him in holiness and purity. But I said that God sees it as just or right in, to forgive us our sins. But how can God pass over sins and be considered just or right? We see the answer in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is the third evidence that we are actually in fellowship with God. What does a believer do with his sin? What does a believer do with his guilt? What should anyone do with their guilt or their sin? They depend on the provision that Christ has provided on the cross. We are called to honor God's commandments and precepts, and we fail to do that often. It is evident to us. We fail to do that often. But Jesus and his righteousness is able to bring a perfect plea before God on our behalf. He allows us to come before God in confidence with his own moral blamelessness. Brethren, it is from this fount that we are nourished and preserved day by day. May we strive to depend more confidently, more joyfully in the provision that he has given. Jesus has provided for our sins on the cross with his own body. And we call those who have not yet partaken in this joyful communion to come, to trust in him who freely forgives and cleanses by his blood. May we not seek to hide our sins and despise his sacrifice, but with hearts of gratitude rest upon his sin-bearing death and his life-giving resurrection. And may we do so by God's grace.